Good morning, everyone. Um, it's such a pleasure, isn't it, to be back in person on a Sunday morning and beginning to move back towards whole church fellowship. I've missed this. Uh, we've got a fairly chunky passage before us this morning. And because we've been running two morning services, I've been asked to keep the sermon to about 25 minutes, which I think I'm going to manage. But it will be a whistle-stop tour. Um, even though if I had two hours, we'd only be dipping our toes into this. I've heard this read twice so far this morning, and each time, still after all my sermon prep, there's bits which are jumping out of me, and I'm seeing slightly differently. And, and so rather than try to cover the passage exhaustively, what I want to do is give a little bit of an overview, um, suggest some observations we can make and questions we can ask, so that we can return to this passage in the week ahead, on our own or in home groups, and then chew on it and see how rich it is, how good our God is. That's my aim for this morning. So let me pray to kick us off. Father God, please equip me this morning to speak clearly. And by your spirit, be at work among us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and humble hearts. And teach us the things that we need to learn from this passage for the week ahead. Amen. So I'm going to start by sharing some of the pitfalls that I risk falling into when I approach this sort of passage. Um, I assume other people have similar challenges. Uh, and then I'm going to give a few reflections and things to look for as we chew on it. So pitfalls first. Um, for me, one of the major problems with a section of rules like this is just that it's a break away from narrative. Up till now, Exodus has been a story and a fairly familiar one. In some senses, it's been easy to read and quick. And so when I hit chapter 21, I'm not ready for such a deep, dense passage. And I end up skimming past it, looking for where the story picks up. I'm moving too quickly. And honestly, it's just hard work, isn't it, to slow down and chew. So I'm tempted to skip. But this isn't just a random patch of law that's been accidentally slotted in. That the writing is more skillful than that. There is a context, there is meaning. And I need to keep my eye on that context that the passage is in so that I see what's happening. This chunk falls in between two affirmations of the covenant by Israel in chapter 19 and in chapter 24. And just before this, in chapter 20, verse 18, they've received the Ten Commandments and Israel were terrified. But as we'll see by next week in chapter 24, after this expansion of the law, they seem to understand better and they're able to make a sober, confident commitment to the Lord their understanding is being developed here. This is part of the story. If I skip it, I'm just not going to get the full picture. A second pitfall is that I know that I'm not going to understand the whole of this. And that's uncomfortable, right? But it's important for us to accept that so that we don't jump to conclusions too quickly. Rather, in humility, we're going to need to hold our opinions lightly and pray humbly and ask the Holy Spirit to help us make sense of his word. 
good example of this is uh, 23 verse 19. That may have jumped out to you. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And we're thinking, why is this bit of cooking advice there amongst all of the criminal and sacred law? What's going on? Why does it even end the section as if it's the key point? Well, if you read the commentaries, you might see that it's a rule there which is to illustrate how highly God holds the bond between parent and child. And people pair it up with 22 verse 30. But if that's so, it's strange that it's in a different chapter. The context is weird. Or or you might read that this is actually banning a common pagan fertility rite. It's part of requiring Israel to worship God alone and not other deities. But the problem there is that we don't have any evidence of that fertility rite. Well, there's a third explanation which feels really attractive to me. This may just have been an idiom that was common for the time. A proverb about mixing old and new, a proverb everyone knew. This command turns up three times in the law and each time it's in the context of giving God the first fruits from this year, not mixing in older spoiled stuff from previous years. Three reasonable explanations, but they're all speculation. All or none of them could be correct. And, And so we've got to be really careful and humble about conclusions that we draw. We won't understand everything. Sometimes it's a weird phrase like that. Sometimes it's harder. We will struggle with the command to Israel in chapter 23 to completely drive out other peoples from the land. But the God of the Bible is good. He's merciful. And yet he's just and to be feared. He knows what he's doing. I need to approach passages like this with humility. We will find things we don't get, things we struggle with. Let's not be surprised by that, but rather prayerfully and humbly chew on it. Bring it to friends and home groups, chat it over with with me or one of the elders. Don't ignore it or assume it's wrong or blank it out. A third pitfall, Um, remember, This is not prescribing for an ideal world. So we've got a section of law here. And God's law is good, it's generous, it's wonderful. But I don't think we want to mimic this rule in our own society. For example, we see talk of slavery here. And it's not much like our horrendous conception of slavery from recent centuries. It's a much better system, but It is not desirable. Just as Jesus said of divorce law in Matthew 19, Israel is given these kinds of laws because their hearts are hard. Because they will get themselves into bad situations. Not because those situations are desirable. Just looking back over these three chapters, what do we see? We have... A society where there will be slavery and debt and domestic abuse and murder and theft and corruption and adultery and idolatry. And we can't look at it and see a society to aspire to. But we can look at it and see what it's telling us about the heart of God. 
about the way that he calls his people to react differently to a fallen world and to their own sin. The last pitfall just to raise, watch out for our own heart attitudes to God's law. It would be really easy to read this and just say, I don't do those things. There's nothing here for me. Or I don't do any of those things. I'm okay. Or maybe how do I take these laws and apply them rigidly to my life? That's not the point. Even by the time this was written down, Israel had seen abundant evidence of the way that they failed to keep this law. In Exodus chapter 18, they had been exhausting Moses with their vexatious cases against each other. Check out Exodus 32 for a spoiler, if you like, of what comes next. And of course, we know it's only in Jesus that we are justified. It's only in him that the righteous requirements of God's law are met for us. We're not bound to live under this now. But there's much that we can learn here about the heart of God and about justice and how we can treat our neighbours with generous love and about the level of purity that God demands of his people. There is much that we can aspire to. So with some of those pitfalls in mind, and maybe others, what can we see in this passage? As I said, I want to encourage you to read back over these chapters in the coming week. And I'll I'll point out four things. They're on your service sheet there, each beginning with a U, that might help us to see the richness of these passages. So first thing to see, these laws are ubiquitous. That is, they extend to every aspect of life. Phil touched on this with the Ten Commandments last week. Those ten rules covered everything from individual internal worship of God through to the family dynamics, through to social interaction in the wider society. And this section of law is not just random rules thrown together. It's more like a commentary on the Ten Commandments, an expansion of them. Perhaps it would be helpful for you this week, if you read back over these chapters, to take each bit and map it back onto chapter 20 and see that. You see, it doesn't go in perfect order, but loosely it works backwards through the Ten Commandments, from the social rules through to worship. And it ends with God bringing them into a new land, a new relationship, mirroring the way that at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, he's brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery. And what's striking to me is how far God's expectations of his people extend. His law is ubiquitous. He expects to be their touchstone everywhere from their treatment of household servants in the start of chapter 21, to criminal law around murder, violence and accidental death, to criminal and civil laws about ownership and theft in chapter 22, and patterns of family and care for the needy and the foreigner and managing debt. And you pick a sphere of life and God cares how his people interact. He's not just the Lord of the Sabbath. He's not safely locked away for the other six days. 
But it's not negative either. It's not that he's a micromanaging control freak who wants to reach down and run their lives. His law is ubiquitous because he's calling them to a blessing that will extend to every aspect of their life. You, you see that in the promises of 23 verses 20 to 33. He promises to give them a land as their home from which he will drive out every enemy. But he'll do it at a rate that leaves them the land in good repair for them. In 23 verse 25, he says his blessing will be on their food and their water. He'll take away disease. He'll give them offspring to inherit. He'll give them full life. There is no part of their existence that he doesn't want to bless. Nowhere that he doesn't want to be involved in and care about. There's no corner of their life then that doesn't matter and where he can be safely ignored. Perhaps this week, if you read back through this, keep in mind the ubiquitous claim that God makes on his people. What will the challenges be for you as you do that? Maybe you read 21 verse 10 and think, well, the way that I treat my spouse, even out of the public eye, matters. Or 21 verse 29, carelessness about causing damage to others is not okay. That's important for the pandemic season, isn't it? Or 22 verse 11, the high regard for honest promises. So do I hold to my word at work, at home, to my kids? Am I trustworthy? 22 verse 28 is a challenge for me. Reading the news headlines this morning, it was a challenge for me. How do I talk about those in authority? 23 verse 12, what's my attitude to work and rest in him? Where do I find my security? The righteous requirements of God's law are ubiquitous. They extend to every part of life. That's being expressed maybe uncomfortably for us with his insistence that those who worship other gods are to be driven out from the land. It's uncompromising because there's no place for idol worship for his people. They're to have no gods before him. His good law extends to every corner of their life. Secondly, God's laws are universal. They're for everyone. This helps, I think, to make sense of some of the tough bits. So um, starting in chapter 21, isn't it jarring for us that men and women are treated differently? And that there is no way out of ownership for female slaves unless they're being neglected or abused. It's probably useful for us to see that throughout these chapters, there are protections being put in place for the vulnerable. That those stem from an honest appreciation of Israel's status before their God. 22 verse 21 illustrates that. Don't mistreat foreigners. Because you were foreigners in Egypt, remember? He's heard their cries for rescue. That was how the Ten Commandments started. That's the core of their identity. They are all a rescued, weak people. And so his protections are not there for the wealthy, but for the vulnerable too. 
So in chapter 21, if a man has fallen on such hard times that he's been forced to sell himself as a servant, it's only for a limited time. He will be freed when the Sabbath year rolls round for him. He'll be able to make his way in life again. Interestingly, unless he loves his master so much that he wants to commit himself for life, in which case he's pierced to the wood of the doorway as an expression before the judges of his commitment. And I think the reason a woman doesn't receive those same freedoms is not simply misogyny enshrined in the law. It's protection from an unfair world. A man could go out and get a job as a labourer and survive. But a woman released from servitude has no safe way. Unless, in verse 8, she's got a family to redeem her. She's protected here from being released into destitution. And with that, her master is given a duty to her that he cannot shirk. Now, it's still uncomfortable. But remember, it's not a desirable situation. As they live in a fallen, broken world where people enslave each other, God commands his people in such a way as to protect the vulnerable. His love and provision are universal. And so reading through these chapters, you'll see protection for men and women, slaves and free, rich and poor, native and foreign, even for criminals. The pattern of the second half of chapter 21, an eye for an eye, it's often presented as harsh, brutal judgment. But I think the point is the way that it limits revenge to proportionate responses meted out by the courts, not by the mob. These laws restrict vengeance and impose responsibilities so that society isn't just a playground for the rich. And frankly, that is weird compared to other societies around them. So thirdly, as you look through these chapters, see how unique our God's rule is. His law, his ways and character that he's revealing to his people here are generous and good. Who is there like him? And so his people are called to be his disciples, utterly different from the nations around them. And this law was, frankly, revolutionary then. Much of it still is now. So as we read through the passage, we see that they were called to treat their servants well enough that they might love their masters. Servants were protected from violence and from sexual abuse. Young women were not chattels to toy with. If their masters chose them, they gained the full status of married daughters. Nothing less. So as you read back through these passages, ask yourself, how do we measure up against this? They were called to live with such integrity that in chapter 22, an oath would be enough to satisfy the court. They were called to be a nation in which immigrants could expect to be treated with all courtesy and fairness. They were called to love each other so much that they would put each other's welfare above debts owed or interest charged in 22 verses 25 to 27. And isn't that a damning criticism of our own financial system? 
they should never have been able to drive each other into destitution. They were called to live with so much confidence in their God's provision that they could confidently take every seventh day and every seventh year to rest in him and still give over the best of their produce to worship. How do you measure up? Now, friends, we, we don't live under the Old Testament law now. It has been fulfilled on our behalf by Jesus. But as you read through these chapters, pay careful attention to how distinct and lovely God wants his people to be. That calls picked up in the New Testament. In, in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're told to live such good lives that those around us end up glorifying God and asking us what's going on. Jesus calls us in Matthew 5 to be a shining city on a hill where the gospel of God plays out in plain sight. And friends, don't you long to be distinct like that? Finally, fourth you. As you read through these passages, realise that they are unfeasible. It's not that they're impossible. Each of these commands is perfectly doable, isn't it? And yet Israel didn't obey. And of course, nor do we. Perhaps they obeyed some at the beginning. We don't have much evidence, but certainly practices like the Sabbath year and the freedom for servants, the rules which hit in the wallet, those had vanished over time. The prophets later condemned that as part of Israel's failing. But even in the short term, by the time this was written down, they've already spectacularly rebelled against God, making a golden calf to worship in his place. And yet, despite their failure, they are still being given this call to live according to his ways. And even within these chapters, we're getting glimpses of how their God is going to bring them into his rule. Look at the remarkable promise of chapter 23, verses 20 to 33. So in chapter 23, verse 20, even though he knows the state of their disobedient hearts, he's still sending his angel to guard them and to bring them to his destination. The fact that in verse 21 they're to obey that angel, that his name is in it, I, I think that indicates that it is in fact God himself who's preparing the way and guarding his people. Now some of the rest of that promise is conditional, isn't it? If you obey, if you listen carefully. And there is this tension that goes through the Old Testament that again and again the Israelites see that they're failing to obey. And yet... Time after time, like this, the faithful covenant God shows them the way forward and promises to guard his people till they've reached the place he's prepared. And so with our New Testament glasses on, we see this impossible call to live according to God's ways. And we see it met in the indomitable life of Jesus. If you're just visiting us or just joining us on YouTube, please know this. To be a Christian is not to obey rules and make ourselves safe. That is not the call of Exodus 21 to 23. 
Rather, what we see here is the heart of God being revealed so that his people can know his ways and imitate him. To be a Christian is to cling to Jesus for security and for righteousness. And because of that, knowing what it is that we've been saved from and who by, because of that we disciple ourselves to his ways. To be a Christian is to imitate the character of a God who has loved us and to rejoice because he works in us by his spirit to sanctify, to make us more like him. And so friends, as you read back over this, realise that we've got one who has gone before us to prepare the way even more powerfully than in Exodus 23. At Christ's cross and resurrection, every blessing has been secured for his people. Well, fellow servants, as you struggle with chapter 21, realise that it's showing us how we have a master that we can love. One who has bought us at great cost, one in whom we have been pierced to the wood of the cross and committed into his household and his care for life. Brothers and sisters, the New Testament tells us that the church is the bride of Christ, the servant that the Father has chosen for his Son to gain all of the rights of a treasured daughter. And as we read these chapters, we should marvel at that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the wonders of your word. Thank you for the way that you lay your heart bare for us to see and for the way that your spirit works to open our hearts and minds to know you better. Please help us to delight in what we find, to be convicted at how far short we fall of your standards and to long to follow you more closely. Disciple our hearts to your law, following your Son, who's gone ahead of us. Amen.